Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Charlie Matz, filling in for Ben Blakey. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. When I was younger, I worked at a church that was very good at live production. We would put on skits, plays, and produce great musical performances. The team I was a part of, they were some of the best at what they did. There was great writers, musicians, lighting technicians, sound technicians, and so on. Now, when you're putting on a live production, there's really two components at the core. There's the technical presentation. How does it look? Sound, feel, etc. But there's the meat of what is actually being presented. The story, the music, the art. Once in a while, we would have a situation where the meat wasn't up to par. Perhaps the story we were telling was weak. Maybe the music wasn't really that great. Maybe the play we were putting on was poorly written and it didn't really have any appeal to it. Well, when this was the case, the technical team would be putting lipstick on a pig, we would say. They could make it look great and sound great, but no matter how polished it was, technically, they could never make it more engaging to the audience because the core of the performance, the meat, was subpar. Today, we're going to get a glimpse of how this can happen spiritually. We can have all the appearances of piety. We can be polished in our presentation to God. But if our hearts aren't fully given to worship, we're just spiritually putting lipstick on a pig. Our Old Testament reading for today comes from 1 Kings 5 and 6 and 2 Chronicles 2 and 3. Both deal with the preparation and building of the temple by Solomon. In 1 Kings, we pick it up in chapter 5 here. We're introduced to this man named Hiram, the king of Tyre. And we know from 1 Samuel that Hiram was a friend of David's who helped David build his palace by providing cedars from Lebanon. Hiram liked David, and now he's going to continue the civil relationship with Solomon, providing his supplies for his build as well of the temple. We can see from this passage, and we can gain from history, that the terrain of Hiram's land was great for growing tall cedars, but not so great for growing food. So Solomon and Hiram, they make a trade, cedar for food. So Solomon, he's going to build the temple. And we know that David could not do this because of the blood that was on his hands due to all the warfare that he was engaged in. So Solomon formed an army of servants to send to Lebanon to help with the work of felling trees and cutting large stones. And we can see more detail concerning the commissioning of men in our other reading in 1 Chronicles 2, 1 through 18. Then in chapter 6, we start to learn more about the temple that he's building. Verse 2 says it was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. That would mean that it is 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, some think that it might have been slightly bigger if 2 Chronicles 3.3 is stating that Solomon used something called the royal cubit, which was slightly larger, and it would make the temple 105 feet long, 35 feet wide, and 52 and a half feet high. Either way, it seems that the temple is about double the dimensions of the tabernacle, and it seems to be modeled after the tabernacle in many ways. Now, there are some descriptions about the details of the temple throughout all of chapter 6, but then in the middle of the construction, in the middle of the chapter, the Lord speaks to Solomon, and here's what it says starting in verse 11. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. God places a higher value on obedience than he does ceremony and tradition. We see this throughout 
all of scripture, especially in the Old Testament, as he speaks to Israel over and over again about situations just like this. The temple, it could be constructed perfectly without a single blemish, but God would look at it as worthless, a worthless pursuit if his people do not worship him wholly with a pure heart and they aren't obedient to his word. This is a good reminder for us at Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley as we raise the resources to buy land and build a building of our own. Of course, we aren't building a temple. We, the body of Christ, are the temple today as we have the Holy Spirit in us, but we still need to heed the warnings like this ourselves as we go to build something that is an external representation of our church. What good would it do our church to construct the perfect building for ministry, complete with all the trappings to do every ministry perfectly, if we didn't walk in the Lord's statutes, obey his rules, and keep all his commandments, and walk in them as the Lord just told Solomon to do? In other words, what good would it do for us to have all the tools for ministry perfectly polished if our hearts aren't fully set on worshiping the Lord? And if we just shrug it off and say, well, we're fine without giving it much thought, we need to remember that Solomon ultimately does wander off the range, so to speak. He gets turned away by the women in his life to worship false gods and turns away from fully worshiping the one true and living God. So do we intentionally build an ugly building with subpar materials? No. That's not the point. Quite the opposite. We want to do whatever we are doing with care and attention and excellence to the glory of God. We don't lower our devotion to quality work when it comes to the ministry tools we use. We instead raise our devotion to the Lord in our hearts, using every tool that the Lord gives us as a means to the end of worshiping him. The problem wasn't that Solomon built too nice of a temple. What was the problem? Well, let's look ahead in Kings to see what we'll eventually read in a few weeks. In 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, it says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. We see right there that God warns Solomon about this, but it says Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So Solomon went from building a temple for the one true and living God to building palaces of worship for these false gods. This didn't happen because the temple was too ornate. It happened because he disobeyed God, not heeding his warning. Obedience is important. Obedience is evidence of a heart that is fully given to the Lord. We don't obey in an effort to earn favor with God. No, we earn favor with God through Jesus Christ alone, but we obey because we worship God and we believe that what he says is best for us. At the end of the day, God didn't want Israel to build a beautiful temple just for the sake of appearances. He wanted their hearts, their internal devotion to match the external devotion that they showed in its construction. 
Now, in our New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians 13, we see a similar theme. If you have the appearance of righteousness, doing great works on the outside, but you don't actually have love for others, then it's all for naught. I want to focus on the first verse of this chapter for a moment. First Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Certainly a verse that you've read several times. You've probably heard it several times, probably at weddings as they continue to read this entire chapter. But first, what is Paul talking about when he says the tongues of men? He's referring to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and men were speaking in the tongues of men, which means real languages. For a time, the Holy Spirit gave men the ability to speak real languages to present the gospel to foreigners. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. God gave the gift of speaking in a language not known to the speaker for a limited purpose. See Acts 14 for more insight into this. The Corinthians started to hold this gift in such high regard that they would actually work to present a counterfeit version of it. It was such a big deal to have this gift. It was so prized because it presented the person doing it as very pious. And second, what is Paul talking about when he says tongues of angels? Well, there's no mention of this being an actual language in scripture. Paul is actually using this phrase to speak hypothetically or maybe even hyperbole. If the gift of speaking in the tongues of men was prized, how much more would the tongues of angels be prized? In other words, what Paul is saying is this, even if you had the most prized gift to be used by God in a very dramatic and public way, if you didn't love, you would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's the whole point that Paul is talking about here. That's the gist of what he's trying to get across. Now, there's a bit more to the analogy of a gong or a cymbal here. There were some pagan false gods during this time, and to honor them in ritual, you would say sporadic words, kind of go crazy, say weird stuff, and bang on gongs and cymbals, making a lot of noise. So to the audience watching this ritual, perhaps Paul's audience had seen this before, it would look like complete nonsense. And so they were running around making strange noises, banging on loud instruments, and for nothing. They're worshiping a false god that can't listen to them. The false gods they are honoring, they're not listening. It's a fool's errand. So Paul starts off 1 Corinthians 13 with a vivid picture that is important for us to understand because it sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. Starting in verse 2, it's like Paul ratchets up the level of irony with each statement. Verse 2 says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, basically if I know how to divide the truth, speak the truth, and understand how to apply the truth, then he goes on, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Basically, if I believe God's promises and I act in faith according to what he commands, I'm someone who has filled with faith but I have not love, then I am nothing. And then in verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, if I sacrifice my stuff, if I sacrifice even my life, but I don't have love, then I gain nothing. So if without love, I am nothing and I gain nothing, I really want to make sure I'm loving. But how do I know what that looks like? Well, fortunately for us, Paul continues. First Corinthians 13, 4 through 13 says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This passage is read at weddings a lot, like I said before. It's probably one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament, and that's why it's so important that you take the time to read it slowly and meditate on it today. It can become so familiar with us, we just kind of glance over the words and don't really think about it. And I want us to think about it this way. God is saying that if you don't love like this, loving the body of Christ in this way, then it doesn't matter at all the work that you're putting in elsewhere. It's reduced to zero. And I think it's easy to look at this passage and only picture our friends and family in the church, those that we naturally get along with or those that are in closest proximity to us. But how are we doing at living this out with those who annoy us, get under our skin, do things in ways that grate against us, rub against our personality? How are we doing at not being arrogant or rude with those people? How are we listening to others and the way that they do things? How are we doing at not being irritable or resenting others, especially those in that list I just listed off? Are we rejoicing when those we don't naturally get along with fail? We shouldn't be doing that. That's not loving. Are we patiently bearing with them? Are we believing the best about them? going face-to-face and talking to them as we believe the best about them, not gossiping out of a lack of love? Are we hopeful for them, praying for them? Are we enduring through trials with them? And then verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, when we're in heaven, our faith will be made sight, and all of our hopes will come to fruition in Christ, but love will be ever-present for all of eternity. That's why it's so important that we practice now with the entire body of Christ. As we reflect on today's reading, let's not deny the fact that there's certainly work to be done in the church at Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley. We're trying to buy land and build a building. We have a building to build. We also have ministries to serve in each and every week. Let's do all of those things with all that we've got. But let's make sure that we don't lose sight of what they're there for. A building? It is a means to worship the Lord through obedience to his word. And serving, well, the gifts that God has given us in various ministry posts, they're a means to love one another. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. Pastor Ben Blakey will be back again on August 22nd. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.